0: easy-to-engage, on-demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And today our guest is uh, Latonya Wilkins and I am having a really engaging conversation with her about diversity, inclusion and in particular the psychological safety that we can all build in any system we operate in. Here we are got to focus on the organizational environment that definitely requires psychological safety to get the best out of people. But what does it require right, to get the best out of people? What does it require to feel safe in organizations? And what role does belonging play in it? What does belonging even mean? And how do you know that you belong or that you don't belong? What do leaders need to focus on in order to help their team members create a sense of real, not just teamwork, but belonging in the team where the uniqueness of each individual is being appreciated? What do you do if you notice there's no way to do that because team members just don't get along? All of these topics are to some of uh, those topics we're going to talk about in today's episode. We also talk about what do leaders need now and in the future, how has this world actually changed and um, how can we bring in a little bit more humanity into our everyday life too. And um, last but not least, Latonia shares a beautiful, a personal anecdote about where her sense for inclusion actually came from and um, how she learned it and how it was role modelled to her and became a part of her DNA. And in 2019, Latonia was awarded one of the most inclusive HR influences. And I think that's quite a title. And she shares with us why she is so particularly proud about uh, this one. But let me tell you a little bit more about Latonia herself. So she's the founder of the Change Coaches and the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and psychologically safe relationships with people who are different from you. And Latonia specializes in coaching executives on leading below the surface to build psychologically safe relationships with their teams across differences. Yeah, So we go deeper here into what makes positive relationships, what is truly needed, and what do people really appreciate in their day-to-day work life as well. And she shares some interesting research around this topic too. She's a sought after keynote speaker and has inspired audiences all over the world. Through highly customized coaching, culture academies, and human centered design services, Latonya and her team work with executives, awardly mobile professionals, and teams to create cultures of belonging, motivating environments, and amplify the only ones at work so they feel more valued, heard, and engaged at work. So that is quite something, isn't it? And to top it all, I also want to share that Latonia has been featured in publications such as Fast Company, Well Plus Good and uh, Inc. Magazine, and she's also gained global recognition when she was recognized, as I just mentioned, as one of the most inclusive HR influencers. So here we go. Stay tuned to listen to the upcoming episode. I'm pretty sure you're having a great time listening to it. Hope you take a lot of valuable insights away. And as always, feel free to leave your feedback with us. But for now, let's talk again in a moment. Enjoy the show. Hey, LaTonia, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: Good. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have you here. And, and there are so many reasons for it. But it has one particular reason. And you and I were chatting about that briefly in our conversation earlier on. Whereas actually, you know, so far I've mainly read books by Amy Edmondson, in particular the Fearless Organization when it comes to psychological safety. Now you have an interesting book that's called Leading Below the Surface, and Amy Edmondson actually wrote the foreword, didn't she?
1: She did.
0: So, so you are, uh, from my assumption, at least taking the whole topic around psychological safety further or maybe into a different direction. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the message or those messages you want to convey?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. I love that you mentioned that. So when I started writing Leading Below the Surface, it, it's all about you know how do we lead for the future and, and what does that look like and how do we lead and have real connections with people who are different from us and the workplace is different. It's going to be different from us or tend to have a lot of people that are different from us moving into the future. So I knew psychological safety was a big part of that. And so when I asked Amy to write the forward and I read it, she sent it to me. I remember when she had sent it, I was, I was at with my partner at a restaurant and I was just so pumped cuz I saw it and it was just perfect and she she kind of said to me does this work and I was like of course it works you know it was just perfect and <laughs> and so one of the things she wrote in my forward is the classic example that she uses with surgeons right surgeons if a junior surgeon knows a senior surgeon is is wrong or doing the right thing. Do they have enough safety to speak up and say something without punishment or repercussion or anything like that? And so she also wrote in my forward a little bit about how she's starting to think about psychological safety a little bit differently. And she's starting to realize the significance that concept has in talking about inclusion in in, in the workplace. And so, so that's, yeah, that's where I'm taking it. It's, it's uh you know, Amy's original ideas and applying those ideas to something that is so important to the future of the workplace and the future of leadership. And that's uh, diversity and inclusion. And it's also uh, just being able to connect with the employees in times of trauma and stress, which is all over the world right now. Yeah.
0: Oh, goodness me. Absolutely. About that connection, we're going to talk, obviously, in a moment. Before that, I want to stay with the book for uh, a moment, because from my perspective, every book has a backstory. There's a reason why we are. I'm saying we. I have never published or written a book, so while you are writing a book. What was your motivation behind it?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I've done a lot of interviews and people have asked me, oh, did you always know you'd be an author? Like, were you one of those people that grew up and were, you were like, romanticized by, you know, the, or, or infatuated with being an author and what that looked like in that lifestyle? And I would say no, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't ever thinking that, you know, I thought I'd be all these other different things. But what happened is, I spent a long time in corporates, uh, leading leadership development teams, leading talent management teams, and what I found is when we worked with DEI teams, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion teams, what I found is that they weren't really helping the organization and they were really over complicating things. And, you know, if you look at me and you consider who I am, you know, I would be like the, the poster employee for DEI and none of those programs really helped me. And, and so I, I kind of went through just the workplace, just really dissatisfied with the DEI agenda and and what was behind it. You know, it's almost like the HR agenda sometimes, which I love HR people. I think they're great, but I I, you know, their their agenda is usually to help the organization. And I know it's controversial, uh, but a lot of us go into HR for the long, wrong reasons. And it's the same thing with DEI. And so and there are some exceptions out there, but but I would say generally. But getting into that story, it's with that, with the career piece and then the personal piece where I had a grandmother that was just amazing with building relationships with people who are different from her and just modeled that i kind of saw something big there like i was like why is everyone not like grandma ruthie like why is this so hard like why why are we trying to you know achieve diversity and inclusion and we're not even talking to each other we're not even inviting each other please we're not even acknowledging you know the the access to these spaces and so that's when I started thinking about this, uh, especially when we, after her celebration of life, I, I was really, I mean, we had it till 93 and, and then I really thought about how can, how can this, you know, how can I could put some of these life-changing ideas out there around this. And so that's where the idea came from. It was really around, again, just dissatisfaction in the, in the workplace Also just seeing my grandmother's like very simple, but effective concepts and also just being teaching at uh, business schools and seeing the research and what actually works and the disconnect between what actually works and what organizations were actually doing.
0: Exciting. Ah,
1: I can't wait to explore
0: that more with you. But I loved what you told about your grandma. I didn't have that topic on
1: my agenda, but what
0: did Grandma (laughs) Ruthie do? What what were those methods that were actually Uh, quite
1: simple? Yeah, she is so, she was so amazing. She was the kind of grandmother that uh, always just brought light into the world, into people's lives indiscriminately. And it was amazing. Um, Even from when I was a a younger kid, I was different. And she always brought light into that. And uh, she made sure that the family accepted me. And she had her simple ways of making light of a situation or modeling the behavior that she wanted to see when people are different. For example, I remember uh, just being young and she was you know, I was dressed a certain way and my parents wanted me to not be dressed that way for this event. And she just told me how nice I looked and, you know, how this is, you know, I was gonna, like, I was gonna have a lot of eyes on me and that was fine. And, you know, sometimes you just have to teach people that, or show people that, that things can be different and that different can be good. And she would say that to me quite a bit. And so um, she also had a lot of friends that were different from her, which was really unlikely in times like that. So between that, I, I think, and, and, you know, just her modeling, those were, again, simple behaviors, where, you know, she's building real relationships with people who are different from her. Oh,
0: my God, my grandma, as much as I loved her too, though she would have said, get this dress on. I hated dresses.
1: I did too. Yeah, I, I still yeah. had to. Yeah.
0: So there was no way around it. So mm-hmm. good for you yes <laughs> it sounds to me as well and you can correct me obviously if I'm wrong as if you were very clear about your own very individual identity early on for me identity is very strongly connected to psychological safety and to inclusion to yeah
1: be, you yeah know, to know yeah. about identity I knew I was very different when I was a child for those of you that don't know me so I I I identify as queer and I knew that from a young age, Uh, probably, yeah, (laughs) probably from, you know, the age of 10, very, very young age. And so it's, yeah, you can imagine growing up um, and in those days it's, you know, it was getting more accepted, but it wasn't as accepted as it is now. And so I, I just knew that, that I was that way. And like you said, with dresses, like I grew up in a very, you know religious family where I you know I really like church because I like playing outside but then one day they said oh girls have to wear dresses even to play outside and I was like this is stupid so I kind of yes. just yeah I knew my identity at that time and I was like no and so I think it was we were going to a church events and yeah I just had a I had a hat on and and, and some shorts, and, you know, I was looking okay, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was a teenager, like, what are, are you expecting, and so, yeah, I just kind of dressed, like, how I felt, like, I, I didn't suppress that, uh you know, after a certain amount of time, so, yeah, I was still figuring out my precise identities, but I knew I was different, and in those ages, I was, like, I, w- I didn't feel myself to be in certain clothes so I just that's what I just kind of stepped into Mm. at a young age
0: Mm. wow I I
1: find it very very impressive and
0: and great to hear that someone is rather clear about it from the age of 10 I remember it took me 33 years to step into my real identity and that has a completely different story religious family as well I, I I am not and uh in the German culture it is Uh, that you even pay tax for being in church. And I said, no, I'm going to step out of it because I have a different belief. I'm going to go to university. No one did before. I'm going to travel and live abroad and live a different life that is uh, different to your view on society and how it should be. Like you have to get married at a certain age. You need to have children, uh, all of that. And it was for me a massive battle to be proud of my identity and my way and, and still is to a certain extent. And I've never experienced a sense of real belonging, despite the fact that I made all the amazing efforts to probably give me this feeling. But it, but it was It was a, always an underlying judgment. And I think that's a huge topic we can see in, in family environments, but also in the work systems quite yeah. a lot. So when we talk about belonging at work, how would you describe that?
1: yeah, so I, I have a metaphor that I use in a lot of my keynotes and it's and the metaphor is like, to imagine that you are in a boardroom and there are chairs around that uh, that table within the boardroom. So there's a long table, chairs around it, and that you pick your chair. So pick your chair around that table. Is it on the ends? is it in the middle? Where's that at? Visualize it. And once you have that chair, that is your chair. And everyone around the table knows that's your chair. And when you're not in that chair, people miss you. And no one tries to paint the chair a different color. No one tries to move the chair. No one tries to cut the chair down. <laughs> uh, and, and again, if, if someone's or something, or if you are not in that chair for, you know, a period of time, people are going to miss that. They're going to want that. That's belonging. Belonging is uh, kind of like even an interdependence. And a sense of independence between you and the organization, where you're, you're valued, you're seen, you're heard. And when I talk about this metaphor, a lot of people say the same thing you said, like, wow, that is really interesting. Like that seat at my at the table, usually my teammates are trying to take it, or they're trying to shape it in a different way, or they're trying to paint it in a different way or a different color. Yeah. And but that's what belonging is, is that that you, you have your own seat. And that seat is is accepted and you are seen, valued and heard.
0: I love that metaphor. So the, the question for me here is how can leaders of those teams, you know, who may get the team around that table, make sure that there is this sense, this really strong sense of belonging?
1: Yeah. So it, this is going to be hard for leaders to hear because, you know, when I was in, I, again, I worked in leadership development and corporate talent management for for larger companies, and the big thing that we were trying to do is scale. Right, we were trying to scale learning and development, like a lot of e-learning. I mean, you also see, you know, virtual reality kind of stuff, augmented augmented reality kind of stuff. You know, just stuff that for the masses, which is important, right? That's just that. That's just the basic level. Uh, in order to have create a sense of belonging in the organizations for employees, it's got to be an individual effort. And it usually starts with the manager, and then the team kind of follows from there. So what are some of those skills? I, mean, I talked about the three prongs of below-surface leadership, which also connect to belonging empathy, so empathetic listening, psychological safety, and a concept I call real leadership, which is a different way of thinking about leadership, relatable, equitable, and aware, and loyal. Again, relatable, equitable, aware, and loyal. So those three things are the future of leadership. It's, uh, again, when you look at the way that the world's going, the distractions, the wars, the racism, the prejudice, the, you know, the, the mental health issues, like, the trauma, like all of these things are going on. They seem to be getting worse, which is really crazy yeah, yeah. and sad. And so this you have to, in order to create a sense of belonging, you have to think about each and each and every employee. Actually, you just made me think
0: because the last time I worked with a group um, of people, it was like a 50 50 split. You had 50 percent who To whom it came naturally to create a sense of belonging, psychological safety, who you could see in their faces and their whole body language, how much they enjoyed working with their team so individually. And you didn't have to explain all of those concepts to them. And then there was uh, the other 50% for whom it felt really challenging. And I noticed they wanted to understand it better, but there there were loads of buts. It doesn't work in uh, virtual when we work virtually together or in hybrid mode. I don't have the time to spend um, so much or invest so much time into my team members, but they have to do the big chunk of it. There, there was all of that, right? And you could literally start to see those two subgroups coming together and having like a verbal battle, giving each other advice, and so on and so forth. So, so when you hear like the cynicism or a critic uh, some some criticism about psychological safety maybe some of the
1: examples I've just shared
0: how do you nicely challenge the people to rethink and shift their mindset?
1: yeah and so and we could put this study in the show notes but there is a study I think it was uh, early it was either earlier this year or late last year that McKinsey did around uh, the great uh, resignation mm-hmm. and it basically, it was a really great study. It had, it had this uh, cube that showed the reason why people were leaving and what companies thought were important to these employees that left and what was it actually important to the employees. So there's a disconnect. So I think group B doesn't really know. They're probably in that block of what we think is important to employees. Yeah. and Group A is in the block where they're like, okay, this is what's important to employees. Top three things. And the one that we probably never heard, like all these, all the times we have the same things on the list. But top three things belonging was in there, belonging was one. The second is feeling like your teammates care for you, being cared for by your company. Uh, And number three was being valued by your manager. Those are the three things. So those three things are, you know, if people didn't have those, that's when they sought other opportunities. What employers thought was important. You actually mentioned this. One of them was remote work. So they're like, oh, people are here for home. So great. We fixed that. We fixed that, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, sleep them alone. They're good. That's not as important. What's important is that employees can choose where they work, but that's not that high, you know, um, as as these other things, right? I, I think, you know, so what? You have a remote job and you're treated poorly, right? I mean, do you think that's going to (laughs) work? Another thing employers thought were uh, like career paths, um, you know, and and that was interesting because I spent a lot of time on career paths with with some companies, but that's not as important anymore. And what that told me is again, this big large scale stuff that you just put out there, you know, employee tools and resources may be expiring, right? That stuff may not work anymore. It may not be as effective. Again, is it useful uh, to some degree? Yeah, but it's probably not going to be as big of a priority if you're trying to figure out what direction to go in going forward.
0: I'm connecting what you just said with your experience in diversity and inclusion, leadership development, and is that before, and there are so many initiatives um, run by these kind of functions, and not all of them are as effective You know, and I have made exactly the same observations and some great people are leading or led those um, functions, but it didn't land. So from your perspective and your experience, why is that? What do they need to do differently? Do we actually need a diversity and inclusion function as such?
1: You mean people that are actually trying to do it and and it's not working? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You know,
0: sometimes there are sub-departments to human resources focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So now we bring in initiatives to make the change happen. But often those initiatives are well-meant, but they are not doing the trick.
1: Yeah. You know, again, I'm going to say something controversial, but I usually you know, when I'm working with a small, we're working with a smaller mid-sized company, we will work with, we'll we'll kind of assemble a DEI leadership team or belonging leadership team, and we caution them from hiring diversity uh, folks, because what I see diversity folks are um, as are mainly project managers. They're people that um, can manage projects, can can influence a bit, can keep a pulse on the market. But th- the issue with jumping to that is usually the structures and systems are not in place. I mean, there's been multiple studies around this where, you know, people don't trust DEI folks. DEI folks are like the least, uh, have the least status in organizations, that they have no power. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, you might have hired them too early, uh, and, and there are a lot of there was a lot of reactive hiring uh, recently. And so should you hire someone eventually? But before you hire someone, really think about what you want them to do uh and, and kind of start that work for them. Mm-hmm. So when they come in, like the structures and systems are in place for success. And again, a lot of organizations don't do that. And so if you're trying to make it happen and it's not happening, I would say you you need to assemble a DEI leadership team or a belonging leadership team and do some real exploration, maybe even some team, enroll of team coaching and enroll of team strategy, um, bring in someone from the outside to help you kind of figure out the direction that that'll go in and involve as many people as possible before you get into this role. Because again, when you're hiring someone from outside, they are gonna have very little influence. A lot of times, their jobs are are not very clear, uh, and, a, and a lot of times they're gonna get they're gonna burn out in a couple of years. So you are one of the people, together
0: with your team, who would come in from the outside to help.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, we do yeah. a lot of that
0: work. So so what is it you do then specifically to set those organizations up for success? Because one thing we got to consider is there seems to be like a wave of diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. trainings going on at the moment. And there is so much importance in it, but there is also a lot of importance in it for me, at least to get that right and to have an impact and to touch the emotions as well. So that people really, that it clicks up here to say, Oh my God, it's actually day-to-day behavior, new habits I might need to, to learn. Right. So, so how do you work with the organization? Yeah. Do do?
1: So there's a couple of different ways that we do it. So, one way is through what we call culture academies, and so we'll work with senior leadership teams. Basically, we'll do a combination of workshops, which are taught, you know we facilitated by coaches, and then uh, we also do some group coaching, some individual coaching, pair all that together with a lot of reflection. So that's one way, and that's extremely effective. It's I I would say that's that's our signature solution, we always have the CEO involved somehow. And sometimes, usually the CEO is involved uh, in an executive coaching for like, for real. Um, And yeah, it's, and that's impossible for an internal person to get that kind of airtime with a CEO. And the CEO, they have baggage, they have baggage. And so it's better sometimes just to bring in someone from the outside. And I, I usually, with that, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that we're hearing the voices of the employees as we're going going to the CEO. Uh, the second way that we help is as team coaches, we we do team coaching with uh, DEI leadership teams. Uh, we we coach around the formation, we coach around the strategy, we coach around purpose, you know, roles and responsibilities, and then we also roadmap with them, and that's extremely effective too. It's, it's so much better than going in your org and saying, oh, I'm just going to put a task force together. And then you put a bunch of people together and they're individual contributors and they don't have a lot of power. And so maybe you plan a couple of parties and it's over, or maybe you plan a couple of things for, you know, different months and it's over. Right. But uh, what we do is, is way much more strategic. And we actually make sure that the team is made up of decision makers. And so we help you do that. And, We also help you make sure that since the team is made up of decision makers, that you have some sort of forum in place to be able to hear uh, people that are not in power, like people that might be running your uh, employee resource groups or people that you know, might be one of the few in the company that you want to hear their perspective. But we, again, we make it structured. So these efforts last and and they stick. And it's not just, again, we have this team and plan a couple parties and it was over and, you know, no one really noticed and that was it. Right. So this is, this actually, we we set you up for, for years of success and with a, with a structured uh, system in place. So even when, that team might leave, or people from that team might turn over those structures in place to keep it going.
0: And what could be those structures and methods that
1: might be yeah. might
0: be required
1: in order for them to run? The first is just making sure that you have different types of, of representation on that team. And then that, that representation. This is actually built into their job description. So for example, uh, like I said, this, we usually have the CEO involved. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll probably have some VPs involved and make it a part of their job. We have to be very careful to not have these teams just be women and people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to have a mixture of people that aren't in those categories, right? Because again, it's it, the work is gonna disproportionately fall on them. So that's the first structure is the selection criteria for this task force or this leadership team. The second thing is announcing this leadership. This is just like any other leadership team, right? Uh, announcing what this, who this leadership team is, what they do, making it a thing, right? Like uh, making a thing for employees where they're out there, they're doing things, they're showing their faces, they're talking about what their efforts are. And the third thing is, again, the structure is the roadmap, right? And as, as you're executing, first sharing the roadmap with employees. And then as you're executing on that roadmap, it's sharing like your successes and your slips with employees. And so again, it's it's really making this a part of your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, organizations have change teams, right? So this would be kind of like that, right? And it's, uh, yeah, just making sure that it's part of people's jobs. I know that probably sounds like a lot of work to, for, for you. If you're listening to this, you're like, I'm not gonna take my SVPs off the line, you know, yeah. out of their jobs to do this, but guess what? What we found is over time, the work gets less and less. And then at some point you can hire a, uh, like a DEI project manager to kind of handle it. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, you are gonna be preparing yourself for the future. Um, and you could also, again, you can hire or you can borrow project managers from across the organization if you're wondering who's going to keep the meetings going or even executive assistants. But yeah, that's that's usually what we do.
0: And I think it's important to look into the future because there's a reason why organizations do this or ought to do this. What are they going to get out
1: of it? Well, I mean, they're going to get, like what I said, It's they're going to be prepared for the future. Even though we um, you know, some people think we're we're going in a re- into a recession. It's still an a, an employees market, and I think that's that's going to be changed forever. Right? That's changed forever. Like I, like some people may think, well, once the job market right sizes, no, I think that that ship has sailed. And the future has changed the way that people look for jobs, the way that people find companies, the things that people you know, want to do in companies. So, so yeah, I mean, you're going to be more competitive as you hire people. The second thing, actually, I was reading uh, an article in The Economist, and I didn't get to finish it, but it was all about you know why managers have a hard job and why we should give them some grace. And that's the second thing is, God, don't you want to help your managers? Because this is hard stuff. Right. It's like a lot of people blame managers for all the things that are going on and when they leave companies. But the the truth is is managers just aren't prepared for for the future workplace. When we're talking about DEI, especially the frozen middle, right? Or you know, you talk about it at the high level and the low level. So this is a great way to get your middle managers involved and understanding and being able to talk about this. So yeah, those are two ways. And if I have to sell you more than that, then I I just think that it's not worth my time or yours. Uh, At this point, Kathleen, I'm just like, I mean, come on. If the McKenzie study and your managers don't convince you, then I don't know what else will.
0: (laughs) Um, I I love how direct and and straightforward you are. (laughs) It's, it's, It's refreshing. Um, absolutely, and it's it has become visible. I actually share the opinion with you that it's going to remain employers, ma- employees' market. The, the big question we hear quite often is, you know, um, what's the environment like? What's the purpose of that team, and so on and so forth. I think people pay a different level of attention now to their future roles as well. And you highlighted the McKinsey um, research uh, or survey beforehand, right? Those softer areas in organisations become more important. And you need to pay attention to it. Now, I think employees also become bolder in changing and moving Mm -hmm. because they want to feel connected. They want to have the sense of belonging as to whether they work virtually or, you know, in an office, it doesn't matter.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I keep reflecting on that conversation that you had where it was 50% in one Mm -hmm. bucket and 50% in the other bucket. And I think that 50% in the naysayer bucket, they don't even know the, the future of work and that tells me that they are disconnected with what's going on in the labor market right like how is someone still saying that right and so you have to train your managers (laughs) because it's just it's like this is happening in slow spurts but then it's just going to be a waterfall just like just like the great resignation now,
0: human beings are very complex. Our personality, our upbringing, all of that plays a role. Our influences around us, right? The psychology is complex. And now, let's assume we have a very diverse team in front of us. And for me as a manager, it's super important to appreciate the uniqueness of each and every one amongst the team and create a sense of belonging. But there are a ton of team members who are always following their biases that people have to be very similar to them only then we will get along. And, and I think that's a massive challenge still in a lot of organizations. Yes. And, and you said, yeah, support your managers, totally with you, easier said than done. How can we help this disconnect and help the team get on, appreciate one another more, even on a, on a professional uh. basis?
1: Yeah, so that's, you mentioned something that I talk about in my book. Uh, I talk about the terrible three biases, and affinity bias, confirmation bias and group bias. So the two that you're talking about are affinity and in group bias and this is a huge problem. Um, it's interesting because I get challenged on this a lot when I talk about biases, because affinity bias does a lot of great things for us, right? If we didn't have affinity bias, we wouldn't have any friends, right? You know, they're friends that are similar to me that I love hanging out with, that I need, that, you know, I, if I need someone to talk to, I call them. I don't want to call someone different from me that doesn't understand where I'm coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, affinity bias also... There are some people that only want to work with coaches of color, right? People of color that want to work with coaches of color or women that. One, only want to work with women coaches, right? So yeah. there's, if any bias helps us in a lot of ways, it protects us. But in the workplace, it's it's very dangerous because number one, we don't even know what's happening. So you have to know it's it's happening first off. Uh, the biggest one I see is schools, right? Um, a lot of large companies hire from certain schools. They only hire you if you have a degree or if you have a degree that's the same degree as them, or you find who you're gonna hire on the golf course or you know like in a situation that's sports related you know no matter what country you're in pick your country sport let's say that right and so yeah it's I, I think the the number th- one thing we need to do is first of all acknowledge our affinity biases where they're at and and just maybe everyone sit down and just go through a week and write down where you might have affinity bias. And again, it's not a bad thing. We all have it, I have it too. And like how it might be helping you personally, but how it might be hurting your organization professionally, right? Um, but just thinking about that and balancing it, don't get caught up on, oh my gosh, it's not all bad, LaTanya. I know that nothing is all bad, right? Not not many things, some things are, but not a lot of things are not. So uh, so really acknowledging where that's, that's at. And then starting to make the changes, right? Again, it's it could be as simple as your hiring processes. I think another one is, how do you celebrate now that we're having more in-person meetings? You know, is it just a bunch of drinking? Um, some people don't drink from people, different, there's different cultures at different oh, events. Yeah. And so thinking about that's right in there, Right, that's another affinity bias, right? Like, oh, is it whoever can party the the most? Are they the ones that are promoted? You know, even encouraging your employees, like there are some apps out there now where you can even just facilitate different coffee chats with people who are different and let them just kind of get to know each other you know, I have a budget to, to hang out, but yeah, I mean, all of those things will help, but this is still a huge problem. Yeah. And it's interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and companies spend on this, all this money, but you nailed it. That is what I still see is like, after this, you know, they'll bring us in. And I still see a lot of unconscious bias going on and a lot of affinity bias going on, particularly. Yeah.
0: And, and I would assume that it takes a while to talk about that, to bring team members together, to raise awareness. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. I don't think it's a quick fix and a quick solution we have here, but role models have to be the leader here as well and to really demonstrate how it can be so useful and valuable. And um, for me, there's a bit of hope. I hear from quite a few leaders uh, who say they consciously build truly diverse teams, because even though, yeah, the road to becoming a team can be slightly more challenging in terms of conflict and, you know, just getting to know one another and accepting um, one another really openly and generally, the results are just amazing. They are diverse, better ideas. I don't have to tell you. You have written a book about it yourself.
1: Right, right, (laughs) right, right. It's... um... Yeah, that diversity is that's only a start. Right. It's try the other stuff first, because like a lot of companies are like, well, you know, I, I can't find any diversity. Well, then work on the other stuff first. Yeah. You know,
0: <laughs> so here we come to another topic that slightly bugs me. So I work a lot with women. I want to support women. That's my my huge goal. When I hear, however, that uh, organizations publish quotes in terms of how many women do we need in certain uh, on certain levels or at the board table and so on, I always get the sense of, oh, can you force it this way? Should we do it this way? Is there mm, are there not quarters. a few other steps we need to take first in order to encourage women to also yeah. truly believe in themselves and to yeah. you know line out this path for themselves with the support. Is it is it yeah. really going to be, be solved through numbers and goals? So I'm I I can't wait to hear from you what you think about that. And it applies obviously to people of different color as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I hate quotas. I do see the value of targets, but I think even targets can start, you know, trying to like reward the wrong behaviors. But uh definitely I, I think it's good to be visionary and. Um, you know, where you are today, where you want to be in two years, where you want to be in five years. But what happens to your point with the board piece, especially women on boards, people of color on boards, what you're seeing is, yeah, there, there's these forced, you know, changes. I mean, we even had some states here in the U.S., like California, that have mandated you get a woman on the board. But but what is that going to help with? Like, how is she going to be treated? Yeah. And then it's like the same people that are recycled, You know, over and over. So it's like, you know, one woman could have like six board positions when, you know, there's people like on that next level down that should be considered. And so so I would say that, um, yeah, I I think that if if you are thinking about, hey, how am I going to have diversity for many years, maybe start thinking about it like today, but also tomorrow. Like what are some ways, like maybe can you contribute to like a board development organization that helps women or, you know, are there, are there other ways that you could connect to to the future needs or if, you know, but this thinking about that, like succession and not just today is so much more helpful than, again, just reacting and trying to get something going. Loving this.
0: Yeah. I do believe there are some other behavioral changes needed in order to make the penny drop and say, hey, this is why I want to be on the board as a woman. And the men say, we can't wait for you because it will bring an additional way of thinking, personality, whatever it is. Latanya, I read something about you, uh, which I found very interesting. I've never received this title. In 2019, you were one of the most inclusive HR influencers. Your, your facial says, uh, can I remember this? I don't know. Yeah,
1: I have, it. I have that. No, that was really cool because um, that was before I started my business. And the only reason why I put that there, it was Social Nicole, um, as the an organization. And the only reason why I still put that on my profile is because it was peer nominated. So I had people in, that were peers, basically, that gave me this recognition. And so I, I think that's so much, that just says a lot, right? That just says, especially for something that's an inclusive award or inclusive recognition that people that are your, your colleagues are saying that. And so I still include that because of, because of that, because it it just says a lot, there are so many awards out there that are like pay to play and so many awards out there that are just not equitable. like people get it and then other people would not agree. And so, yeah, that was a cool one. And I, and I hope we have more rewards like that. And like those, again, those are the best ones out there for me is, is when people around me in my community is saying great things about me and saying in reiterating all the things that I say that I am.
0: So now it's the time to stop being so humble and to share with us what what feedback did you receive? What did they say to you why you
1: had to have this or receive this award? It was like a list of people and to make it to the list again you had to be like you had to have like certain people had to recommend you And yeah, people said that I was always willing to help. And if I couldn't help, I would connect them to other people. I call this below the surface leadership now, but just basically that I stayed below the surface, that I'm very understanding. You know, I do this work with grace. Uh, I'm not judgmental. I'm very inclusive. Uh, And I I bring in, I tend to bring in other voices, like all of these things. And what was really, again, what was really neat, Kathleen, is like, I wasn't really that well known. i didn't have a book at that time. Mm. Like all of these things were just, you know, qualities that people said about me. And so it was. It's really neat that, uh, you know, all of these qualities also uh, are words that people use to describe me as an author and as a coach and a person. That that I'm all of these things. Like that I am approachable. That I am non-judgmental. That I I have very creative solutions. That everything I say is real, right? Like I'm not. You know, there's so many thought leaders out there that, you know, they have all this, they they have all this stuff that they throw out there, but they're not practicing it themselves. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's the commitment I'll always make uh, to myself. Uh, I also make it for Change Coaches, which is the company that I run, where, you know, we hire based on values first. And so, yeah, I don't care how great of a coach you are. It's really about the values first. And I'm not as concerned with the technical skills. But yeah, um, those were some of the things that were said and, and that, that I still see in here.
0: I guess your grandma was one of your key influences here to build this kind of personality. It seems to come so naturally to you. Is there anybody else in your past who you'd say, oh, man, they, they really had a strong influence on me?
1: Yeah. So when I was uh, in corporate, this was like one of my final corporate jobs before I went on my own. I hired a coach to come in and speak to some of my executive leaders. And she was so amazing that, you know, I I think at that time I, I just didn't, why, why was she amazing? Well, at that time I had no confidence and I was not, I knew I wasn't in the right position and I knew I wasn't, I knew my voice needed to be heard by more but I I knew that the company I was in wasn't was stifling that and stifling my creativity. And so what I did is uh she kept saying that to me. She kept saying that and saying that and saying that. Like a lot of people were threatened by me. And uh so I called her up like a year after I hired her. I'm like, Can you be my coach? And she was like, I don't want to be your coach, I wanna be your friend. And so she was <laughs> such an influence. I mean, she's been uh, you know, I probably had her as a coach for about a year. Her name is Sherry. I'll just say her first name, but she has been such an influence on me. And I will tell all of you, if, if you are thinking about making a big change, you know, you're thinking about starting your own business, you're thinking about leaving a position, you're thinking about making a career change, get a coach you know, get a, but and you don't have to get the coaches that are loud and are going to be, you know, set you straights and all that stupid stuff. You want a coach that is going to be caring and understanding and like really seek to understand you and what makes you tick. And so, and I was so lucky to have that. I I just, I just I, I kind of fell into it. So I would say that's like a once in a lifetime kind of coaching experience. So yeah, if, if you are making a change, do that. But yeah, that's, she's another person that I would say had a had a huge, huge influence on me.
0: Wow. I want to meet Sherry. Um, that's for sure. Perhaps we can publish the link to her business as well. <laughs> Who knows? I have just a couple more questions for you because we talked a lot about psychological safety, inclusion, belonging, what leaders can do in order to um, increase this level of, or this feeling of belonging. Now, from the sounds of it, you kind of felt in your last corporate role that it's not the right place for you. As to whether it was a lack of belonging or just not a 100% fit, I don't know, but something was clearly noticeable inside of you. When you speak to people who openly say, I don't feel I belong, how do they feel that? What do they notice? How are they feeling as well?
1: That's a great question. And the number one thing is, uh, you know, when people are feeling that, you know, I also do a lot of somatic work. So I have them go into their body and identify what's going on in their body when that's happening, when they're feeling like they don't belong. And with that, I would say that nine times out of 10, it's that there's a values clash between who they are and what the organization wants them to be. Again, I'll say that again, values clash between who they are and who the organization wants them to be. And it's not even necessarily a skills clash. It's you almost always a values clash. And what that means is that what, what the organization values and, and wants from you is there's a mismatch, right? Yeah. And so it's identifying what that feels like in your body. So when you can you, when you feel that, it's familiar. And you know that that's not you. You know that there's not, nothing wrong with you. That's just your values speaking and saying, hey, this isn't right. The organization will make you think there's something wrong, right? But the values are just speaking up. And so understanding what happens in your body when the values are speaking up. And then from there, it's, yeah, like what we we go through a values exercise, like what are the values that are not being honored? And, you know, can we fix this or can we not? And if we can't, then what do we do next? And literally, I know a lot of you listening might want to challenge me and say, well, it's really about your skills. It's really not. It's, it's about your values. And uh, it's sometimes that is, that could be life-changing if you know what those are and you know when those values clashes are happening and you can either, and you can decide what to do in those situations. Do you want to stay in a situation? Do you want to leave a situation? You can make the choices. And so it's helped me so much values work. Cause again, it helps me hire, helps me understand who I want to be friends with. Right, like I, you could, I could see in my in my body if I connect to my body and I'm talking to someone, right away I could say, mm, yeah, I mean I get tight in like my my stomach and I'm like, ah, I don't think this is gonna work, right? And I just politely go, right? There's so many things that we can politely walk away from when we can recognize those feelings. I, I think it can just
0: sometimes be hard to walk away from it because some people are prone to still blame themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and try to force themselves to fit in. I can still remember saying to my previous boss in my last corporate experience, I felt like a square peg trying to push into a round hole and it just doesn't work. And, and I felt like I with, was withdrawing all the time. I just didn't belong. And it was so clear to me. I felt uncomfortable and I was definitely not being myself. And yet I was trying to mm-hmm. make it work. Mm-hmm. And doubting myself all the time. Right. And I think that's where the support comes in, let right. be a coach or someone it,
1: else. It does. That's where the support comes in because it's, it's also, you know, in those situations, it's important, again, to connect with your values and those voices. Like, again, and those voices might come about in ways that, you know, are bodily responses. And you have to connect to those responses because, again, it's just it's really just your values speaking up and saying, this is not working. This is not. And, and it's, you might not fix it right away. Right. Like I remember one time I was at a company and there was a, there was a male colleague I hated and he was just a narcissist and I couldn't leave my job the next day. And I thought something was wrong with me. And one of the greatest coaches I've also been coached by was like, so are you the keeper of the values? And I was like, no, I mean, I don't, I could handle my values, but not his. And I, that's what I kind of, noticed is like and that was my breakthrough is like okay I just need to get my values in order and understand those and like live by those but not try to micromanage someone else's and when I know that then I could just say okay we just have different values all right so what are I just got to move forward this has nothing to do with me there's no deficit it's just different right
0: what a wonderful way um, to come to the end of our conversation today, but I'm not going to let you go Latonia, without you sharing where people can find out more about you and the book as well.
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of places you could go uh, leading below the surface.com. And so that's the book landing page. You could also connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm at Latanya Wilkins. That's probably my most active network. I'm on Instagram too. And then um is our website. If you're listening to this after like July of 2022, then changecoaches.io will finally be up. It's been a long time in the running. So we'll also put that in the show notes.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so, so much. And um, it's been joy talking to you really, really refreshing. And yeah, I, I love your approach. So thank you for sharing all your insights with us today.
1: Thank you, Kathleen. This was great.
0: And thank you to all of you out there. Connect with your values. Do take some time just to check in and to reflect upon what's really important to me. What do I stand for? And then to see, okay, the environment I'm in, does that work? I think that's, that's absolutely crucial to be done. If you have any additional questions or comments for us, Do feel free to get in touch. We're always there for you. And I can't wait to hear your feedback about this episode too. But for now, stay healthy, stay safe and speak to you very soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music or on my website www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time.
1: Bye.